Welcome to the NEPA Project, a monthly podcast discussing NEPA and other environmental topics. In this episode, we will discuss climate change in regards to NEPA, including the withdrawal of the draft guidance from CEQ and the implications of recent court cases. This episode is brought to you by the Shipley Group's Bundled Courses. Bundled Courses provides effective and efficient live virtual training for a team with diverse training needs. With our bundled courses, you purchase 15 days of training for the price of 10 or 25 days of training for the price of 17. You can share these training days among your staff and they will never expire. If you have any end of your funds, this is a great option. For more information, go to shipleygroup.com. The guests on this episode will be Michael Smith and Ray Solomon. Michael Smith is a nationally recognized leader in NEPA and Associated Environmental Law Compliance with over 20 years of experience in project and program management technical analysis, policy development, and training education for a wide range of public and private sector clients. Ray Solomon retired from the Forest Service in 2003 after 32 years of government service and is now an independent environmental consultant. Ray served as the Deputy Director of Ecosystem Management in the Washington office before retirement. Let's get to the conversation. Michael, as you and I agreed, we would uh, we would discuss for this podcast the, the whole issue of uh, climate change or as as you point out uh the, what the administration would like to call climate anomalies so <laughs> i suppose the the uh, changing of the terminology is kind of uh indicative of uh, where this administration is with this topic relative to nepa but the areas of discussion that i think are useful for us to look at would be one the uh, the draft guidance from ceq and its withdrawal and and what was in it and what the implications might be of that withdrawal if any and then secondly, some of the uh, implications of uh, court cases that we've seen over particularly the last year, two years since this administration went in and kind of where the courts are looking at some of uh, the uh, what the expectations are, particularly for downstream or indirect and indirect effects and maybe cumulative. The topic of maybe uh, social costing and, and where that's going. And then finally, the uh, the ANPR that uh, the CEQ recently put out. With that, Michael, if you want to kind of give uh, your ideas or thoughts on the uh, the climate change guidance from CEQ and its withdrawal. Sure. Thanks, Ray. Yeah, and maybe we'll just I'll just start with a very brief um, kind of uh, tour of the history of that uh, guidance document. Um, I'm sure some folks listening in are probably familiar with that, but others uh, may not be. And uh, I think it actually goes back to the late 1990s during the Clinton administration. There was actually an internal sort of administrative draft of a a climate change guidance related to NEPA that CEQ had developed and uh, sent around for review uh, within federal agencies. But uh, it never, I think, at the tail end of the administration, that administration never kind of got out for even a a public comment period. And then it kind of uh, the issue, I don't know if the issue went away, but certainly uh, guidance from CEQ went away for quite a long time. But I think as a number of things happened in the mid-late 2000s, especially even though it wasn't a NEPA-related court decision, the uh, Massachusetts EPA Supreme Court decision in 2005, I think it was, uh, basically um, telling EPA that uh, greenhouse gas emissions um, were a pollutant that should be covered under the Clean Air Act and that they should basically then go and determine whether they should regulate it, which they, they later did. 
and made that finding and then started down that road for, for a number of years. And I think the attention and the publicity and all of that that came out of that sort of spilled over into NEPA. And I think a lot of commenters on NEPA documents started to uh, public meetings and written comments on certain NEPA projects, particularly larger projects, especially those involving burning of large amounts of fossil fuels, so particularly energy and fossil energy related projects, uh, asking federal agencies or requesting them or demanding uh, that they do those uh, analyses. And we started to see certainly a, an uptick in court challenges against agencies that were either not addressing the issue at all uh, in any penalties or we're doing it in a very sort of perfunctory manner. And out of that, I think, came a lot of agencies' uh, requests to CEQ to develop guidance. There was, I think, a lot of confusion on the issue. Of course, this is the, the beginning question of, is this an issue or a topic that should be addressed in a NEPA document at all is kind of the first question. And I think many agencies back at that time took the view that uh, it, it wasn't, and I think partly because they felt that it was such a large and unique issue for NEPA that the NEPA analyses may not have been the best vehicle for sort of addressing it at a kind of a, not only a national public policy level, but really a global level, given the nature of the issue. So um, despite all that, um, there again started to be court decisions. That some of them were telling agencies that they, they did, in fact, need to do that analysis and they involved a variety of different kinds of projects from uh, energy projects, transportation, including uh, motor vehicle emissions or uh, motor vehicle standards, fuel economy standards, uh, train, uh, rail projects that were transporting uh, coal, um, and then again, other kinds of uh, fossil energy projects in particular, but, but some other even forest service sort of land management type projects and BLM as well. And out of that, um, in 2010, I believe was the year, CEQ released a draft, uh, and it was during the 40th anniversary celebration of NEPA when they released a, a draft guidance document. And Ray, I know you were um, um, intimately following that at the time, and it was a, a very interesting reaction. It's a pretty detailed guidance document, and I think among other things, um, Two things stood out to me at that time was the strong language that CEQ felt it was an issue that fell under the rubric of NEPA, and that for at least many NEPA projects, maybe not the most small and most minor, but most other projects, that um, you know was an issue that should be addressed, and that there were a variety of different ways to do it. And certainly, one of the most controversial portions of that first draft guidance issued in 2010 was on the issue of how to address. Uh, quantitatively greenhouse gas emissions and also thresholds of significance. And at the time, CEQ used a, a metric that EPA had developed as part of their rulemaking for power plant emissions of a, 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 an annual sort of ca uh, limit of 25,000 metric tons of, uh, of carbon dioxide equivalent, so kind of total greenhouse gas emissions measure. And basically, in the draft guidance, it basically suggested that if you were above that line of annual emissions in your NEPA analysis for your project, you should probably do a quantitative analysis. And if you were below it, it seemed to suggest that you could probably just sort of qualitatively address the issue. And uh, they received a lot of feedback um, and comments on that. And, and um, again, Ray, I know you've been following this issue for a while. I'll just stop there for a second because... Uh, 
as we both know, that uh, that metric went away in the next draft that was issued. But I know you might have some thoughts on uh, that portion of well, yeah, and, and and in fact, I I I actually uh, felt that CEQ hadn't gone far enough. My personal opinion on that, and was actually um, disappointed with subsequent versions, the next two versions, the final version, and then the the intermediate draft they did, that, that, that I felt that there were aspects of climate change and the analysis that one could do that they backed off of, that I was kind of disappointed. But I know that CEQ traditionally tries to get agreement among the federal agencies and reach consensus. And of course, anytime you try to reach consensus, you tend to you will kind of uh, soften the language that you use in order to accommodate everybody. And I think, as you're going to talk about, that's kind of, at least that's my perception of what happened with the subsequent draft and then the final. Yeah, and indeed, yeah, that's exactly what happened. So I think it was 2014 when, so four years later, another draft was issued by CEQ, and indeed the the 25,000 metric was removed there was really no mention and yeah i think that um, you know the language was left very open-ended and and up to leaving it up to agencies discretion on determining i think several things one of which is would they would they discuss greenhouse gas emissions from the action at all and you know the guidance I, i think actually could be easily read to say that unless, again, you had a very, very minor project, like you're installing a sign or something, that there was probably value in at least addressing the issue. But then the question of whether to do that qualitatively or quantitatively was, you know, largely left up to the discretion of the agency and, you know, using really logical factors like, you know, is there a easy or relevant way to calculate the emissions from the action? And, you know, these days uh, there are. can go online and EPA or some NGO calculators for all different kinds of actions and equipment that you might use. And in just seconds, you can actually get um, estimates for that. So I think, yeah, that issue. And then, you know, the interestingly, I think this gets lost a lot of times in the discussion on the issue of climate change in NEPA is, you know, there are two fundamental aspects really of the issue. And one is uh, what we're talking about now, which is the, the action's impact on the environment, in this case, through greenhouse gas emissions and potentially affecting climate change. But there's kind of what some people call the reverse of that or even reverse impact assessment, which is kind of putting that around to say climate or climate change impact, potential impacts on the action. And that can kind of happen through two two fundamental ways. One would be that the climate change itself and changing precipitation patterns or hydrologic changes and flood regimes, um, you know, obviously severe storm events, sea level rise, that any of those things might affect our actual action in some way. And particularly if it's an infrastructure project, you know, the idea or the implication that we probably ought to be considering that, particularly for projects that might have a, a long lifetime in terms of their operation use. So that's one piece of it, but the yeah, other piece is also how the climate change may affect the other resources or impact topic areas that we're covering, whether that might be vegetation or wildlife habitat, uh, et cetera. Yeah, go ahead, Rick. You mentioned the second half of this, what I call the flip side of, of the equation here. And, 
and that is the implications to agencies uh, from changes in, in climate, whatever that might be. And I, I was disappointed in CEQ that uh, they attempted to provide guidance on the greenhouse gas emissions with the 25,000 metric tons. And then uh, there was other standards that EPA was wrestling with uh, because of their their regulations for uh, uh, potentially controlling greenhouse gases, 75,000 metric and so forth. But but on the side of the responsive strategies, I was disappointed the CEQ didn't provide the same type of, of a time frame, uh, if you will, benchmark or goalposts that one could decide that if you were less than a certain number of years for the life cycle of your project, that climate change would be uncertain enough as to not be an issue for addressing in your document. Whereas if you went beyond that, then, then it does become a question that I think agencies should look at as they look at the projects. And I was disappointed that CEQ didn't give some type of a guidance as to what that limit might be as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And, you know, when that uh, second draft came out in 2014, certainly that was an area that CEQ received a lot of uh, comments on, um, but they, they, did, uh, they did separate that area out as a separate sort of area, and, you know, and despite, I think, some of the lack of clarification that you're pointing out are not going far enough, you know, nonetheless, the guidance, that draft guidance did have you know, pretty strong language suggesting that, you know, yeah, that you know, most, most agencies for most of their actions should probably be at least thinking and scoping about addressing either of those aspects of this kind of reverse uh, impact analysis. Well, just to quickly finish the story, as most, uh, probably many folks are aware, uh, so that second draft came out in 2014, and then in August 2016, CEQ actually released uh, the final uh, guidance document. And I think for a lot of uh, NEPA practitioners and, and agencies, there was a, a little bit of a sense of relief, even though if they might have still had issues and problems with some aspects, the fact that there was now a final guidance document was um, viewed as useful and helpful, particularly given some of the conflicting court decisions that we talk about later here that were kind of adding an element of confusion on the issue. And many federal agencies, uh, it, uh, certainly well, all federal agencies, many of them were holding back on changing their own uh, agency NEPA regulations or issuing their own guidance because they were fearful of doing something that counter uh, to what CEQ was doing. So there was actually quite a bit of activity uh, not long after uh, that August 2016 release of the final CEQ guidance. And I think uh, overall, people viewed that as sort of a positive development, and you know that some agencies were really starting to solidify what their uh, approach was in, in tackling this issue in their NEPA documents. But again, many people probably know to further throw a wrench in that uh, uh, aim toward uh, more clarification in the new administration last April, April fifth, twenty seventeen. Uh, and this was out of an executive order that the president had signed ordering CEQ to do this. CEQ published in the Federal Register uh, a notice of withdrawal of the final guidance um, for the greenhouse gas emissions and, and climate effects guidance document. And to my knowledge, I don't think CEQ has ever withdrawn uh, any of their final guidance. I don't know if you can recall an instance, a very unusual event. No, I cannot recall an instance where 
CEQ. Now they've they they have uh, superseded a, a final guidance yeah. with other final guidance, but but I've never known them to ever withdraw a, a final guidance. So so this brings us then to the topic, uh, Michael. Of okay, now that it's withdrawn, what does that really mean, and, and what, <laughs> what what can we surmise from all that? Which then brings us to the court cases, which uh, you and I have both been intimately uh, working at at looking at. So, so what are the courts telling us? Because clearly the regs didn't change. The law didn't change. The only thing that changed was the guidance, which if CEQ had never issued the guidance in the first place, we would still have to comply with case law. So you may want to pick up from there what, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, well, I'll start actually with an observation because I think, you know, your your first part of that question is an excellent one. Of, you know, it's a, and lots of people, of course, and NEPA practitioners are asking this is, you know, so what are we supposed to do and what does it mean that the, the guidance was, was withdrawn? And I think, you know, the first point about that for for everybody to recognize is, you know, when it was in place, it was uh, a guidance document and a guidance document only. And so it wasn't a change or, or revision to the CEQ implementing regulations nor the statute. And so it didn't remove all the uh, confusion because uh, there's a long line of history of court cases involving NEPA where questions over what is the true meaning and force or effect of CEQ guidance documents, you know, as being guidance versus as being obviously a regulation or a, a statute. So that aside, um, I'll just say from my observations, I've been hearing from many federal agencies uh, and attorneys who work for federal agencies and also with the Department of Justice that uh, there is there is some response out there that says, well, the guidance was withdrawn, but there's a lot of really useful and good information in there and good direction. So we here at Agency X are continuing largely to follow it. We, we won't be saying or we won't be citing it in uh, our NEPA document, but uh, we think there's a lot of good stuff in there. And and in fact, um, I, I've actually seen some recent NEPA documents that have said that, you know, well, while we were working on this NEPA document, while it was in process, you know, it, the guidance was in effect. So we followed it. And yes, it was withdrawn. Here's a note about that. So I, I think that's kind of an interesting response that, you know, again, this whole process has left some agencies kind of in a, a little bit of a confusing lurch. But, yeah, the um, kind of moving then to sort of the court's response. And, um, and again, it, it's not like the withdrawal triggered some sudden response from the courts. I mean, this issue, again, has been addressed by courts and there have been NEPA climate change challenges going back to, I think, the first case that I'm aware of was way back in 1990. Uh, and then there was kind of a, again, a quiet period for quite a long time. But since that time, there's, and especially if we go back about a decade or so when this issue really kind of took off, there have literally been uh, well over 100 federal district court and appellate court uh, decisions that we've had on this issue. And we, we've not had the U.S. Supreme Court uh, directly address this issue with NEPA, at least to date, although I suspect, and maybe partly because of the withdrawal of this guidance, maybe that might lead that issue at, at some point down the road to, uh, to hit the Supreme Court's docket, or they may be interested in, in taking a, um, an appeal to them on this particular issue. But, um, you know, Bray, your question, which is probably what most people would want to know is, okay, well, what's the answer? What's the court's view? 
And like lots of NEPA issues, you know, unfortunately, there isn't some single conclusion that we can offer about what the courts say. You, know, you have to do it. You don't have to do it. Um, the decisions are a little bit kind of all over the map. And I think you can say uh, one observation I would make in following these court decisions is certainly for larger actions, particularly those involving fossil energy use, there's a pretty predominant opinion at both the federal district court and appellate court levels in their decisions that you, know, you need to be addressing the greenhouse gas emissions, certainly directly from your project. And there are some interesting yeah. questions, and we can talk about this uh, next. I'll turn it over to you here for a second for your initial thoughts. But there are some very interesting questions that are kind of being debated in the courts and the decisions right now about how far we go with indirect effects analysis. In other words, um, often with energy projects you know, on the upstream side. So if it's something that's, say, transporting fossil fuels like a natural gas pipeline, you know, does the agency need to address where the natural gas is coming from and the potential impacts from you know, the development of a natural gas well and fracking and, and all of that. And then on the other side, at, at the end, on the downstream side, you know, does, the, does an agency regulating and, and proposing an action just for transportation of the fuel, do they need to look at the, the actual burning of the fuel emissions, whether that happens in the United States or in some cases uh, off somewhere else in the world? And then there's a, a cumulative impact kind of issue that transcends kind of all uh, through that as well. And uh, again, we'll, we'll talk in a minute here about a couple of specific recent uh, court opinions on that. But uh, uh, I'll turn it back to you, Ray, just for some of your kind of initial thoughts on the overall kind of um, court litigation. Yeah, no, your, your, your summary, your summary, Michael, is, is right on with, with exactly kind of the, the development of how the courts have looked at this. And in fact, as, as I go back and look at the court cases, I, you, you really, the definitive court cases that that re required agencies to be uh, at least quantitative in, in the look of the greenhouse gas emissions side, you find that that the Southern California uh, case and the district case in 2003, it was really the first one that that really suggested that agencies had to take that quantitative look and. When you take a look at that 2003, that's only, what, 15 years ago. And in, in terms of the course of NEPA since 1970, that's fairly recent case law. So as you indicated, this, this uh, evolution of the interpretation of the courts and what they expect is, is not only new, but it is inconsistent, not inconsistent, but but it, different circuits and different districts give you a, a little different spin on things. And, and so it hasn't gotten to the level where it's really as defined as other cases. And as you point out, uh, certainly the Supreme Court ha has not weighed in on the NEPA side of it, the aspect of uh, either the greenhouse gas emission side or the responsive strategies with the exception of under the Clean Air Act uh, litigation, which at least the Supreme Court went as far as to say, yes, it is a pollutant. Well, okay, now that, that kind of raises this issue uh, a, a little to a higher level than it might have been had the court not suggested that, that greenhouse gases were uh, potentially uh, a gas that that EPA could regulate. Now, how they're going to do that is a whole other issue. But, 
<laughs> but yeah, I, I think uh, as it's developed, at least my impression is the courts have, have at least indicated uh, you, you need to quantify. The, the quantification is really dependent on the breadth and the amount of uh, fossil fuels you might be producing. Uh, the downstream question, of course, is related in part to the quantity. The area, though, that you may want to speak to as well um, is the courts I haven't seen been quite as instructive in the flip side, and that is when do you have to consider the implications of climate change? Uh, I've seen some of that come out of ESA legislation, particularly up in Alaska. But as it really ties to NEPA, I haven't seen that come through the courts in a way that is suggesting the level of analysis that we do for the greenhouse gas emission side. So with that, you may want to kind of summarize your perspective on where you think the important cases are on all that. Sure. Yeah. And that's a really you know, interesting you know, aspect of this. And I think you know, the short answer is that uh, the courts really have rarely addressed uh, to date that issue of this kind of reverse impact assessment. Um, I've seen it a couple of district court um, opinions, one I can recall from several years ago in Montana that's involved a challenge to a forest service sort of logging and thinning project where the, the plaintiffs um, charged the agency had not addressed those types of impacts kind of at the ecosystem level and, and taken the, the changes of climate into account on how that was going to affect what the, the action was designed to do in restoring to a particular forest condition. And in that particular opinion, the court said, oh, well, we don't really think that that falls in the purview of NEPA and they don't really uh, need to do that. So we haven't seen a, a, a strong opinion the other way saying, you know, emphatically, you know, you do need to look at this. And as you mentioned in the Endangered Species Act, I can also think of some opinions that go way back to like, I think the year 2007 here, uh, where I'm at in California, where uh, with the, the, the water delivery sort of projects and changes uh, here in Central California, doing the biological opinions that the Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Fisheries Service were doing for species, several species of salmon, and also another fish species uh, in the Sacramento, San Francisco Bay Delta called the Delta Smelt, where the agency, you know, it was a 50-year, I think, sort of period for the biological opinion, and uh, the court said that the agencies had not taken into account the changes that were expected and that the science and modeling, including uh, science and conclusions that the agencies themselves had prepared about how the snowpack in the Sierra Nevada mountains was going to be quite a bit lower, it was going to melt earlier, and so that the whole sort of hydrologic regime was going to be changing. And yet the uh, the analysis in in that case, again, in the biological opinion, just assumed kind of a static baseline that, you know, the conditions 50 years from you know, at the time that they did the analysis would be the same. And the court just said, you know, we have a thousand pages here that says that's not true. So, you know, go back to the, the drawing board and redo that. We haven't really seen that direct kind of NEPA issue be addressed head on. At least I haven't in a court case. I suspect we probably uh, will um, kind of going forward, but it really hasn't come up. So, um, again, the majority of the case law has been on the, uh, you know, the, the effect of the action on climate change through greenhouse gas emissions. And I think maybe, Ray, the last thing we'll want to talk about then 
before we conclude is, uh, again, just a few of these recent cases and court opinions we've seen that kind of point to maybe what we'll see going forward that kind of both relate to the continued building of this case law and how the courts are viewing the issue, and then maybe also a response to the withdrawal of the guidance and also other initiatives that are currently going on in this administration. And uh, I, I think, yeah. as I mentioned briefly yeah, earlier, this the issue of indirect uh, impacts analysis and the scope of that in NEPA reviews for actions, I think is really interesting. And uh, I wanted to mention uh, one opinion from last year. This is from August uh, 22nd, 2017. A lot of people consider this, who kind of follow this issue, and I know a number of attorneys that I've talked to consider this to be kind of a game-changing opinion in many ways. So the case is called Sierra Club v. FERC. Uh, the opinion, this is an opinion from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. So that's part of why this is kind of viewed as a really important uh, decision, uh, just because of the prominence of the D.C. Circuit Court. And they have not issued uh, an opinion uh, worded in this way in such strong language previously on several other challenges against federal agencies and NEPA analyses. And the, the action here involved uh, the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and their approval of a, uh, a certificate for a pipeline to run from essentially central uh, Alabama down through part of Georgia and then into Florida. And so it was tying into an existing pipeline network that is bringing gas from the Marcellus Shale region, largely in Pennsylvania to the north, uh, down, and then essentially constructing a link of pipeline, actually three interconnected segments that would take it down to central Florida. And there were several projects that utilities there were um, going to be converting or building new uh, natural gas power plants and or converting from a coal-fired power plant. So FERC did an EIS on the project, and uh, the challengers led by the Sierra Club sued. And uh, among other things, the key issue here is, is they said that you know that the analysis was flawed, didn't comply with NEPA because the agency did not look at the indirect effects of burning the gas. So in other words, the CIS did have a quantitative analysis of the natural gas, the GHE emissions from constructing and operating the pipeline itself and its associated compressor stations, but it did not look either upstream at where the gas was coming from, although the challengers didn't challenge on that. But again, the challenge issue was they didn't then do a calculation and analysis of the emissions from actually burning the natural gas. And part of the agency's argument was that's outside of our scope of what we review under our law that we're doing the action under the Natural Gas Act. And we don't control power plants and burning, so that's outside of our purview. And Sierra Club's response was, well, that may be true from a sort of jurisdictional standpoint, but from a NEPA standpoint of an indirect effect being caused, you know, taking place under CEQ's definition and the implementing regulations, an indirect effect being an effect that happens farther in distance or later in time from our action. And they said, well, that's, you know, we think that's exactly what's going on here. Long story short, the court, again, in a very strongly worded opinion, basically said that they did feel that it fell under um, the purview of NEPA and the definition of indirect effects, and that uh, despite you know the agency's jurisdictional argument, they, they have the data and information. And in fact, and, and a lot of people pointed that out as a distinguishing factor in this particular case is that the agency had available to it very specific information from the utilities and other entities in Florida about exactly what kind of plants it was going to, how they were going to burn the fuel, et cetera. And partly for that reason, the court said, therefore, the agency should have provided that analysis. 
Now, based on yeah. that decision, the agency then went back and actually supplemented uh, their EIS to add that analysis. And they did that very quickly. So the decision was in August. By the end of September of 2017, they'd issued a draft supplemental EIS that was eight pages long. And it, it included that quantitative analysis, but it said, that's all we can do. We, we can't go farther and tell you what we think the implications of these greenhouse gas emissions are for climate change, because we don't really have the technology and ability to model that. And then they also said, because the petitioners had asked them to use the social cost of carbon tool, potentially, mm -hmm. as a, a way to essentially calculate what the the damages, the effects on overall climate change might be, and the agency argued that the tool was not suitable for a number of different reasons, and therefore they weren't going to use it. Um, they then issued a final supplemental EIS in February of this year, and then ultimately, uh, that was a little bit longer, they did a little bit more detailed analysis, but continued to make the same arguments about the inability to say what their model, what the ultimate effects on climate change were, and also that they weren't going to use the social cost of carbon tool. And then ultimately this spring that they did approve the project with the revised supplemental NEPA analysis. So we'll see what happens, whether that case may be, um, or whether that supplemental NEPA document may be challenged as well. And uh, there are several other uh, challenges involving that agency with other pipelines. Uh, and some of those involve, some that are pending in the courts right now involve the question of upstream um, impacts again and whether they should yeah. be addressed as an indirect effect as well. Kind of building on that, that did set certain expectations, I think, uh, in terms of where agencies thought they might go in terms of what they do. And that varies by agency. I, I mean, just the recent case, the uh, the uh, case up in the District of Montana, where Judge Morris just in March of this of this year ruled against the BLM in much a similar way that uh, BLM approached much the same analysis that FERC had done with his argument that we really can't. We're not going to look at the, the indirect effects of the greenhouse gas and where that's going to go and, and some of those downstream questions. Uh, of the They looked at the greenhouse gas emissions of the project in terms of the development, the, the construction of, the, of the, uh, the wells and all that, but they didn't take a look at the production level of it and the downstream implications. And the court then sent it back to BLM to work with the plaintiffs in the case to work that out. So here again, recently in 2018, we see that that same kind of, of a philosophy on the part of the courts. However, it isn't universal among agencies. I find as an example, here, here you have the BLM taking that course of action. And, and yet when you take a look at the five-year oil and gas leasing by the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management for the Gulf, which was put out in, uh, I think the uh, final for that was in July of 2017, or not 2000, yeah. And in that analysis, as you point out, not only did they do the downstream analysis of that, but they also did a, a, what I consider one of the more sophisticated analyses of the social cost of carbon. And so different agencies, even within the same department, seem to be taking different strategies. And, and I'm not sure 
um, where that's all going to end up in the courts. But you would have thought that the administration would have established a more uniform approach to this, which evidently they have not decided to do. Or if they do, I would be a little cautious of them being overly conservative in restricting the level of analysis, because I I think the courts clearly, if anything, are expecting a higher level of examination, particularly of indirect effects and the cumulative effects than what this administration might expect them to do. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, Another argument that uh, has come up in some of the, certainly in, in the court challenges, has been uh, agencies, as you said, this this kind of wide diversity we see. So some agencies have been taking the position with some of their actions that they're not really, in in a way, I guess you could phrase this as responsible for the you know the emissions that might come from their action because of kind of a substitution argument. And so we, we saw an opinion, a very strong opinion, last year, to also in 2017, in the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, based in Denver. Uh, it's called the Wild Earth Guardians v. BLM. So another BLM challenge, although this yep. one for coal mining in the Powder River Basin. And here, the agency in their EIS basically said that, you know, that there really wouldn't be any net increase in emissions because if this coal was not mined, wherever the coal was going to go, whether it was going to be burned in the United States or over in Asia or wherever, that, you know, those people in those power plants would just get the coal from somewhere else. And therefore... The change, the difference between our no action alternative to not mine this coal and our action alternative, there, there really is a difference. And the court did not buy that argument at all. And, and one of the interesting things that they said about that was they, they pointed out that the agency had calculated the benefits of mining the coal and you know the jobs and employment as well as the burning of it. And and then basically said, but we can't tell you about the adverse uh, impacts of that. And the court just said that doesn't really make uh, logical sense. And you know, they, they call that as an arbitrary and capricious you know, argument for that. And we've seen that in a few other opinions as well. And, and that issue, I remember, came up as well with uh, all of the debate about the climate change impact analysis in the Keystone Excel pipeline. And the, and the State Department was working through that several versions of that EIS going back uh, about a decade uh, now. And of course, that, that issue is still, still pending in the courts where we now have challenges to the, you know, the recent administration's decision to overturn the decision to deny the pipeline. And now we have challenges that the, the NEPA analysis may be you know, out of date that are pending in the courts for that project. So that's another one to stay tuned because there are some climate change uh, issues with that particular opinion. And then the last thing I just want to mention, interesting kind of another piece of this I've seen in some of the recent court opinions, but especially challenges that we're seeing from some of the NGO groups is asking for, again, particularly agencies, as you mentioned, like the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, FERC with pipeline regulation, and then also the land management agencies like BLM that deal with large energy, oil, gas, et cetera, type projects is Groups that are now saying that these agencies are missing the cumulative impacts, cumulative action sort of aspect of some of these, particularly when they're looking at groups of individual projects in a particular geographic area. So, for instance, there are a few uh, challenges and petitions uh, with the first, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, where they've been considering a number of different pipeline proposals from different companies in the geography of the Northeast. 
And uh, the NGO groups are basically saying, hey, you know, you, you're one-offing these and there's really a cumulative impact issue here. and You probably should be doing some type of programmatic EPA document that considers a group of these actions. If they're happening in a similar geography and with similar timing, maybe you need to put them all together. And some may remember at the tail end of the last administration, BLM had actually begun a programmatic EIS for coal mining in the, in the United States. And looking at that from a big picture sort of view with a, with a big focus on the, the overall cumulative greenhouse gas emission climate change piece. So, again, you know, the administration, uh, that particular EIS was um, uh, canceled in progress when, uh, when the new administration came in. But I don't think the issue is going to go away. And I suspect that's another piece of this that we will see continue to outcrop in, in, the, in the court's uh, cases and the challenges that uh, challenges are going to bring against federal agents. Well, and the, and, and the other the other uh, issue that that has has uh, arisen, but not really been litigated to an extent that the courts have ruled one way or another on it specifically, is this business of the social cost of carbon that although certainly EPA had 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 come up with some ways of doing that, Boehm had done that as part of their EIS. That is not a consistent analysis that has been done that I've seen as part of the economic evaluation of greenhouse gas emissions. And then adding to the complexity of that is the administration's efforts right now and looking at how EPA has, has approached that of discount the the discount rate that EPA had originally used of 7%. This administration is saying, "Well, oh, wait a minute now. That that doesn't make sense in light of the current uh discount rates that we are using of around 3% and, and therefore clearly the the social cost of your greenhouse gas emissions is greatly inflated and therefore we need to look at a a, a closer look at what that implication is." Which, in my mind, you may want to speak this, Michael, in my mind is kind of an interesting dilemma in that the administration in trying to deflate the whole social cost analysis has actually given it some validity by focusing on the analytical internal rate of return rather than trying to debunk the whole process. So do you have any thoughts on that? (laughs) Well, yeah, it does seem to be a little bit of an irony that, yeah, by... By arguing that you know that you know, in, you know, the assumptions used were incorrect, and therefore we need to fix or revise them, yeah, it does seem to run counter to other arguments that we've seen uh, agencies and the Department of Justice make in defending some of these challenges that you know NGO groups have brought to agencies for not using the social cost of carbon tool in their analyses and. That was one aspect of it, but there were other aspects as well that were used to say that it was too speculative and, you know, had other problems. So, yeah, and, you know, with the courts, we've seen um, at least one federal district court opinion, I think back in uh, 2014, involving the Forest Service with coal mining in Colorado, where the the court actually said that uh, the agency uh, needed to use the tool and that if they wanted to go forward with the project, they needed to revise the, the NEPA analysis to do that. And then we saw in an opinion last year, uh, I think in that case you mentioned, with 
the Office of Surface Mining in the Department of Interior with coal mining in Montana, that the court there, they didn't actually directly say you have to use it, but they, they did say, they did tell the agency in the opinion, ruling against the agency for other reasons, uh, with flaws with the analysis, that they should have used the, the tool. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of a pretty strong suggestion. So yeah, I suspect we'll we'll see more of that. And and I think you're right that uh, the decision to perhaps revise the, the tool kind of re-legitimizes it. So that probably only increase the uh, interest in challengers wanting to uh, press that particular argument. Well, and 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 to me, that kind of the last area that we may want to talk about uh, that that'll be interesting to see where we go is the recent. Uh, uh, AMPR by uh, by the uh, CEQ of looking at redoing the CEQ regulations and and right now climate change is is, is certainly a, a not a prominent uh, uh, mention within the CEQ regs given that you know they were written back in '78 where climate change at that time was not uh, one of the front running issues uh, to be dealt with and. So I'm wondering where this might go in terms of if CEQ does change the regs, whether they will address climate change or not in any more refined way than what is currently in the regs. Yeah, I think that that's uh, certainly both an interesting and uh, outstanding question and standing in terms of how it will be resolved. And, and in that notice that was published, I think it was last week or the week before in the Federal Register, you know, CEQ posed a series of questions that they wanted folks to comment on as they begin this project of potentially revising regulations. And, you know, as, as you noted, Ray, of course, climate change, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, none of that is, is mentioned at all. And the, the questions are actually very, very broad. Now, certainly, I suspect they'll yes. get feedback, they'll get comments to some of the broad questions about should we provide clarification on any topics, you know, that we don't now do in the CEQ regulations. I'm sure people will mention that. You know, one thought about that, though, it's kind of interesting going back to the early days of people addressing this issue is, you know, I I would sometimes hear folks say, well, you know, we don't really need to address climate change or greenhouse gas emissions because they're not mentioned in, as we pointed out, in the 1978 CEQ regulations. And I always point out, you know, there's actually you go in there and really look that there's very few specific impact or resource topics that are called out. I mean, CEQ doesn't provide some list. Here's what you should cover. Here's what you should not. They just say do scoping and figure out what's what's relevant. So I've always found it kind of funny, the argument that, you know, well, it's not mentioned in there, so we don't need to analyze it. It's like, well, what about the other 10 issues you are you routinely look at in your NEPA documents? that aren't mentioned <laughs> in, in the regulations. And so, yeah. so we'll see. I, yeah, yeah, I think that'll be <laughs> interesting. I laugh. Sometimes I, I point out uh, Section 1022F, which a lot of people totally blow off. They, they don't even know it exists until I point it out. Yeah. And, and it does talk about uh, indirectly uh, global-type issues but the little escape clause in there is as consistent with foreign policy. And so, you know, that kind of throws a little bit of a wrinkle into it that, that some people will argue, well, gosh, you know, clearly this administration doesn't believe that climate change is something that's, that's a policy area, particularly us uh, wanting to uh, extract ourselves from the Paris Accord. And so why should we deal with Section 1022F? But you know, it's there. And, and I think it does remind us that, 
that as we move forward with environmental analysis, particularly for larger projects, that one should be a little cautious about ignoring some of those uh, larger kinds of issues. Totally agree. And as we move toward uh, concluding here, Ray, I just wanted to give folks a, a shout out to an excellent resource. You know, these, uh, I'm sure if, even if this is a new issue for people just listening to our conversation here, this is a pretty complex issue. There's a lot going on. There's an increasing number of both, you know, pending court cases and court opinions on this and a lot of different varieties of different ways that agencies are addressing this currently in their NEPA documents. And so a source that I use frequently, which is just a, a fantastic source, is the Columbia University in New York. They have a climate change law center. and You can just do a, a web search for that Columbia Climate Law Center and should get you to their link. And uh, they've got a lot of fantastic resources. One thing they do is they follow all of the, the NEPA case law related to climate change. And they seem to update it, I mean, literally, if not daily, weekly. And it's a running tally of all of either the pending cases or the court opinions that have been issued with you know, links to the actual opinions, or if it's a case still in progress, the, the briefs from the, the defendants and the plaintiffs. So a really wonderful resource. And they actually do that for all areas of federal law, including the Endangered Species Act and Marine Mammal Protection Act and Clean Air Act, all the other laws that we've seen. And they actually do it internationally, too, for those that might be interested in that. But the other thing they do from a practitioner standpoint, you'll find on their website resources involving NEPA and climate change, including some studies they've done where they've had, I think, you know, law student interns basically comb through every EIS for a period of time. And they've done this for several snapshots that have been filed with EPS to, uh, with EPA to see, did they address climate change in any fashion, either the greenhouse gas emission side or the reverse impact side? And if they did, what did they do? And did they do a quantitative analysis? Did they do a qualitative? And then they do some interesting parsing of the data. They show that, you know, for water resources projects, a certain percentage look at climate change, but it's higher for energy projects, it's lower for transportation projects. So some really interesting reports that you can find. And then also they've done some interesting practitioner sort of white papers on how to address some of these issues, including how to address, again, this idea of climate change impacts on the action itself and, and how might you do that and some examples of how some agencies have uh, you know, addressed those issues to date. So I would certainly recommend that for folks that want to kind of going forward follow this issue. That's a, a really great uh, source. Yeah. And I guess with that, uh, Michael, we'll kind of end this podcast and to say that, you know, as you point out, it, it is a developing area of analysis, a developing area of case law, and uh, we're just going to have to see uh, where this all takes us, but it, it is in an area of development and infancy, and so folks need to pay attention to the recent case law, particularly the Columbia Law School database, which I use in identifying the courses that, uh, that we teach. That that's an excellent resource for people to rely upon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the NEPA Project. To view the transcript of this discussion, go to shipleygroup.com forward slash podcast. If you have any questions or comments in regards to this episode, or you have any topics or ideas for future episodes, please reach out to shipley at shipleygroup.com. We would love to hear from you. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe on iTunes or anywhere you listen to podcasts and share this podcast with your colleagues. This episode was brought to you by the Shipley Group's Bundled Courses. Bundled Courses provides effective and efficient live virtual training for a team with diverse training needs. With our bundled courses, you can purchase 15 days of training for the price of 10 or 25 days of training for the price of 17. 
You can share these training days among your staff and they never expire. If you have any end of year funds, this is a great option. For more information, go to shipthegroup.com. Thank you for listening. And remember, NEPA is just good planning and decision making.